be full of fright. I dreamt that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Hello. Hi. At the devil's ball. At the devil's ball. Hello, and welcome to The Dispatchist, a friendly conversation about hell and some other stuff. I'm your host, Jacob, sitting alone in a strange void. This is week two of our rather long conversation about Lilith, uh, this one goes down some very deep rabbit holes, so we hope you enjoy it, or at least um, nod seriously with your finger alongside your jaw and tap occasionally. Uh, let's get to the topic. So what about those, I, I mentioned bowls. Oh, yeah. What did you, the, the Lilith bowls. The incantation bowls. Uh-huh. Straight up honest truth. I had 40 open tabs in researching this. One of them was Incantation Bowl. <laughs> I've seen it. Uh-huh. I looked at it. I was like, I'm probably going to look on Etsy for one. I didn't Not- read the article. <laughs> Too um, long, didn't read, ordering from Etsy. Yes. <laughs> T-L-D-R-O-F-E. <laughs> okay, uh, help me out with an Incantation Bowl and why I need one in my life. This bowl is intended to seal the house of Givani so that the evil Lilith may flee from him in the name of El who has scattered the Liliths. The male Lilin and the female Liliths, the Shilith Nathia and the Chipathia, the three, the four, and the five, naked shall you be driven away, unclothed, with your hair loose and streaming behind your back. Text of a bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you get, you get like four of these bowls and mark the corner with them to protect yourself or to protect your children from the bad. Do you put anything in the bowl? Um, your hopes and dreams. I don't know. I, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're fairly shallow, so, you know. Kind of like my hopes um, and dreams. Yes. But it's true. Like, I want to know more about those bowls. You can find pictures of them online. There's quite a number of them. Um, and some of them have pictures of Lilith in them. And they're very mm-hmm. cartoony, but they show her kind of crazy, crazy hair flying all over the place and female parts. And it's really a very messy image. But she's kind of like Sheila and Giggs, you know. On the note of this, what this Lilith looks like, I have to go back to the Hulupu story. So which one? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hulupu tree story. The Hulupu tree, yes. Yeah. The owls. Her name, her name in there, because this is a very weird one. Her name in there. tree. Her name in there is Keysickle Lil Lake, the maiden Lilith. Subtext: A maiden who screeches constantly, and a gladdener of all hearts. Okay, those two things don't typically go together. <laughs> that's, that's all I got. She screeches constantly because her hair is tangled and she's trying to comb it. And she's got a... And she's not an owl. She's got a very sensitive scalp. Mm-hmm. But she's sweet and kind. And she tells funny jokes at parties. And screeches. Because she's got a <laughs> she sensitive scalp. <laughs> Well, anyway, there's a lot of these kind of mystical fragment bowls. They're kind of big in Middle Ages demonology because they have spells and incantations in them. Yeah, that. I don't really have much to say about them except that they are where some of our information kind of lives in these little little apotropaic wards. Hey, Jacob. Yes? You know that one friend we have, Ashley, who has the kiln and does ceramics? Yes. Do you think we should commission her to make us some 
Bowles. Hey, Ashley, are you listening? (laughs) (laughs) Ashley. Okay, that's super cool. Let's go back one and a half steps. Lamia is a snake woman. Yes. And Lilith is an owl woman. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. she's got snaky elements. She snakes mm-hmm. in the Garden of Eden. But yeah, that's not her predominant thing. She's a night flyer. Like that yeah. is really her dominant. That's her that's her word of power. Like when she says the word of God, the name of God. And then Shem-Hem-Brath, flies away. Yeah. It's like Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Um, God. Yeah, she does. Um, yeah. So yeah, she's very birdie. And the Lamash to uh, Lamia thread is very snaky. Lamashtu was a bull, well, which is neither we, we snake to, nor bird. We have to get beyond that. <laughs> also, um, Nurgle was a bull and not a lion. I thought he was the cutest so, kitten in the world. That's, <laughs> yes. That's that is, that is oh, completely uh, mythologically <laughs> we accurate. To, we really need to do, redo Garfield with all of our... Could be Pazuzu as... Garfield, except Gilgamesh. Hates money. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, when 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 she when she took when the Babylonians took over the word Lamasu, they just kind of threw it away and made something new, uh, and that something new was kind of awful and animalish and a very bestial child eating demon. And it just we 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 moved beyond Bullbeard Lady, but it does seem like every culture has their own version of the child stealing creature. Mm-hmm. Like there's Galu demons, which I think that's a Mesopotamian word, and those are still alive as the Gailudos in Greece. So that one had some sticking power. Uh, in Arabic, I like this word. Uh, Karina is kind of where the Lilith story went. Uh, she's the version that Lilith meet, that uh, Solomon meets on the road, and I think it's a very Obzuth style meeting about a monster that hunts new mothers and eats babies. But her name is Corinna, and I like that a lot. It's just a good, a good, a good name. It means female companion. So there's that again, that kind of other woman note mm. to the story. Oh, is that the story where she? And I know I don't understand this. Why do demons always tell people that if you say my name, you will vanquish me? Like, why did they give away the the well, secret in the, in the Corinna story? Um, Solomon meets her on the road and. I guess maybe this is the Abzuth story in the Testament of Solomon, or maybe it's mm-hmm. a related story. I don't know. She shows up and says, I'm very bad. I eat babies and hunt new mothers and um, pee in your Cheerios. <laughs> and Solomon says, you're horrible. I will curse you. And Corinna says, don't curse me. And Solomon says, yes, I'm going to curse you. And she says, no, uh, how about I'll just tell you my 12 names and anyone who writes them down does not need to fear me. And then you give Solomon your name and you're screwed forever because he'll use that until like. Yeah, you don't tell Solomon your name. Right. No, it's just like I don't. I mean, I think it's well. Again, who's 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 writing all this? Not the demons, um, but they always seem to to give up their the secret. You know, oh, the Mandian invocation against Lilith's: "Be you fettered and bound, giants of the darkness, and fettered be your bodies with a strong change with Smith's fetter monsters. That's- fettered be your magic and your illusions you create." <laughs> Fettered be your wives, the Liliths, the Salamanders, those deformed figures that are ugly, perverted, misshapen, whose appearance and constant chattering no one can tolerate. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's five fetters and one salamander. I counted. Yes, it's, it's, that's bi- <laughs> it's binding magic, you know. <laughs> it's a lot of, lot, of, lot of feathers. 
Um, we're going to somehow get back to Lamia. Was there oh, more yeah, to- yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I want to understand better why Lilith and Lamia become connected and where that goes. I, I kind of see the, the linguistic Lamas to Lamia, Lilith. I just, I'm still stuck on the like personification of it. Lamia, I don't think there's like a really direct linguistic connection between them. At some point in time in the like the early years, just the Greeks use that as a translation for like that piece from Ezekiel you were reading. It gets translated to Lamia by one of the major Greek writers. What? Really? I think so. The hyenas yell, the goats yell, and the snake ladies talk? Well, the Lamia is just night demons, and then the snake ladies get kind of wrapped up in that. These myths kind of weave in different ways. Lamia is just a word meaning night demons for the Greeks. Then at some point, some later commentator says, you know, these are really the same category of organism. Hmm. Let's just move on. They're just kind of free associated with each other. And then kind of all of the female seductive things, because I, nothing is more seductive than a lady with snake hips. Um, like all of the female seductresses kind of get categorized together into the big Lilith umbrella. I, I, I kind of love the drawings of, <laughs> of the snakes with like these just really kind of uh, just impassive human heads yeah. on their little snake body. <laughs> kind of weird. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You guys play tabletop games. Is Lamia a creature you are familiar with? Yeah, snake lady. Okay. If you go to your favorite local Japanese uh, sandbox site and type in Lamia, you're going to get thousands of hentai drawings of snake ladies. Uh-huh. Right? And it's interesting because you say, like, there's hips. You've got the, 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 the face, the smile, the hair, and it's normally good hair. Um, you've got bare chest. But then from the waist down, nothing. Right? Well, snake. Well, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, nothing hentai. Right? And it's like I depends on where you put the snake. Uh, okay, you and I go to different websites, obviously. Do I need to leave? But no, like I, I knew what a lamia was because there's so much, so much like anime Japanese references to these things. And then when we start doing this, like, wait, how did this context, how did this concept become appropriated over there? With none of the anything else, like these video games with Lamia in them, but they're not Liliths. Where are they? The, the Lamia is a night demon. The Lilith is a night demon. All these things are the broad category of night demons, and they stay that way. I mean, the, the, all these categories kind of come forward, but they're closely related. None of them really eats each other. Maybe they do. I don't know. None, none of the myths really devour each other and stop although Lamashtu no longer really exists, but they're kind of part of each other's stories. Hmm. Seductive female slash baby killer slash dark other woman. Okay, so with what we've got, with what we've gone over, Lilith was incredibly important then. Is Lilith important now? To be honest, like I've been kind of... I've been thinking a lot about Lilith as a feminist icon because I feel like that is her continuing importance is that she's been embraced as 
this figure of female transgression, right? Like, like energy, like kind of riot girl, female anger that is channeled into to, to something creative or sort of smashing the patriarchy. So you've got Lilith there, you've got just kind of this embodiment of all these things that a lot of people sort of, if they're not true about Lilith, they've kind of decided they're true about Lilith. She's kind of like this dark Stevie Nicks figure to a lot of people it's like an alternative cosmos that might have been if adam is stuck with his first girlfriend right right so but i I, in thinking about that i started reading this book uh that jacob knows about the book is called satanic feminism lucifer and the liberator as the liberator of women in 19th century culture by per faxnell and so there's a chapter called Becoming the Demon Woman, Rebellious Role Play. And so I started thinking about, like, what, like, why do women decide to take on these kind of personas to play out certain aspects of female power? And in this book, uh, in this chapter in this book, the author talks about three separate actresses around the, the turn of the 20th century She never uses the name Lilith, but they all have taken on sort of Lilith-like accessories to self to to kind of self-create. Well, I remember I remember the thesis of that book kind of fundamentally being associating Satanism with voluptuousness and pleasure seeking and like Mm -hmm. decadence. Yeah, but not I mean not in a bad way, in a like Mm -hmm. decadence as rebellion against whatever the hell came before. Yeah. Uh, and I think that whenever you sit at the intersection of voluptuous and decadence, s- well, Satanism mm-hmm. and female energy, you get Lilith. Like that is the that's the female branch of the Satan myth. Yeah, exactly. And and even though they're not described, that the word Lilith is never described. These women, in particular, Sarah Bernhardt, Luisa or Marquesa Luisa Casati, and Thetabera, sort of took on. Um, all of these different kind of satanic aspects as part of their personas. And they were, I mean, to the extent that they uh, would, like Sarah Bernhardt slept in a coffin. She wore (laughs) taxidermied bats. (laughs) Uh, She went so far as to take the uh, kind of bestial nature of, of Lilith and Circe to the extreme and actually consulted with surgeons to have a tiger tail uh, affixed to her own spine. What a um, terrible idea. Did, did it work? It never, as far as we know, it did not work. Hopefully the surgeon um, said no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but these are all like, initially, you know, the, the question is whether or not these women were feminists. And so with Sarah Bernhardt specifically, um, she was kind of taken up as a feminist icon because of these transgressive acts and her transgressive way of dressing and way of living. And she even sort of espoused a kind of uh, proto-feminism, but it was all in kind of the search for uh, individual liberty. And she's also a wealthy white lady who owned her own production studio, so she can kind of get away with it. She didn't really need the patriarchy to support her. But in the end, like you know, all of these feminist trappings, not only, you know, in one, on the one hand, seemed like transgress- transgressions, but on the other hand, still supported the patriarchy because 
society could look at her and say, like, well, that's what a feminist looks like. They're all demonic. They're all evil. There is a prime example of what you should avoid. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, she's constantly, again, described as a chimera or um, a serpentine. And again, like, huh. she brought a lot of this serpent imagery into her clothes. And she also had this huge menagerie of rare animals, oh. including a lynx and a, ti- and a baby tiger. And that kind of goes Save into that this. one for later. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like, <laughs> she's measuring the tail, <laughs> kind of lining it up. That um, tail is ready for harvest. There's that yeah. kind of the double-edged Lilith myth, though, is like, yeah, there's this freedom from uh, a lack of equality, um, mm-hmm. the ability mm-hmm. to chase your own, kind of the ability to chase your own destiny. But at the same time, you are really branding yourself as like the dark mistress, the other woman, the the bad woman, and, yep. mm-hmm. and, and everything that means. Maybe the bad woman is a poisoner. Maybe the bad woman is just a mistress that destroys marriages but the bad woman is is definitely not an unvarnished trope (laughs) so somebody who got many of her uh posturings from sarah bernhardt was marquesa luisa casati and she came a little later she's uh sarah bernhardt uh was she was maybe born around 1844 died in 1923 the marquesa was born in 1881 and died in 1957 but she was more explicitly satanic in her motifs, and she used those as um, an emblem of transgression and rebellion. And she potentially may have also been a legit-ish Satanist. Like, she she actually dabbled in some occult uh, rituals and things, and Sarah Bernhardt didn't. It was it was all about the fashion and the self-commodification. Real quick. Yes. 1880. Mm-hmm. When was Crowley? So, so, yeah. So she is connected Perfect. That was my question, because yeah. she sounds yep. like the Crowleyist, mm-hmm. and she is. So tell us, I'm sorry, tell us more, please. No, that's a very good point, because they're they're sort of like, they're breathing the same air. Hmm. They're in the same evil bubble. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. But what's interesting here is that she has also, like, her friends kind of associated her with Core or Persephone, and so Ooh, she was that's kind a big of, name for us. Yeah, so she was often referred to as the um, queen of the underworld, the the wife of Satan. That's just again like another persona that she took on, and that other people uh, helped her perpetuate. She also there were rumors also that she was Circe because she, like Sarah Bernhardt, had this large menagerie of animals, and the rumors were that they were all men that she had. She'd use sorcery to turn into those animals. And she even had more of an identification with snakes and wore them as jewelry. So she, uh, again, very much in the Lamia mold. I feel like we should say something about the dark witchcraft lunar connection between Hecate and Circe and Lilith. You're reading my mind. But instead, I want to talk about how Circe helped me win Scrabble. Yes, please. Tell us how Cersei helped you win Scrabble. Uh, so you can't use a proper noun in Scrabble. Uh-huh. This, is, right. this is a known thing. But Cersei's island is A-E-A-E-A-E. A-E-A. Ah. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Um, if you get one of those annoying Scrabble hands where it's just vowels, mm-hmm. and you can find an N on the board, you can play A-E-A-E-A-N 
which Somebody is an extremely from. obscure synonym for magic. Oh, oh, I was thinking of somebody from that island. Yeah. Oh, so. Well, would also be. I'm A-E-A-E. But the A-E-A-E in arts is another word for magic. A-E-A-E-A in arts. Ridiculously obscure word. That is amazing. It is worth seven points. I was going to say, you won Scrabble by seven points. I'm super. No, I double word scored it for 14. See, that's about my speed. Like, I should be better at Scrabble. I need to practice more. Um, but so again, this is another, another situation where this very, uh, carefully curated transgressive persona, um, that's supposed to be a form of rebellion. Again, it's not an activist form of rebellion so much as kind of a self, uh, focused form of just trying to forge an identity and a mythology about oneself. Hmm. Again, like a thumb, you know, like a, a kind of F you to the Catholic Church, both she and Sarah Bernhardt were divorced women who had suffered uh, excommunication from the Catholic Church due to them being, you know, uh, these evil divorcees. But the other really interesting thing that I, I learned from this book is that there's a great term for this kind of self-mythologizing called life in quotations. So you're living your life in quotations if you're kind of living according to certain patterns. And this idea was popular. popular, It was uh, created by the psychoanalyst Ernst Chris and popularized by Thomas Mann. So even something that is seen as culturally transgressive, you're still working within these patterns that have been set out by the cultural system. So this is where I was going to where I have to bring up Gramsci and cultural hegemony. Wait, even, that was Harry Potter's yes. owl. No, no. <laughs> it's also, yeah, it's also um, Pinocchio's little friend, Hegemony Cricket. <gasps> oh, yeah. yeah. I loved him. Mm-hmm. Well, he's kind of kept Pinocchio in line, not with force, but with ideology. Mm. Fun, fun fact, the phrase life in quotations is ungoogleable. <laughs> Google just kind of like fold in on itself with a sigh. You just get every single quote about life, which is functionally all quotes. Pause now. Type that into Google and resume this podcast. But so this this brings up the idea of like how like none of this can really be that transgressive because we're working with these tropes that are created by the patriarchy and by the Catholic Church, right? I- I need a definition of cultural hege- he- hegemony. Yes. So the, the idea of cultural hegemony is that, you know, systems of power don't always operate uh, through, through force. Right. They often operate, like keep everybody in line um, oh. through ideology. So it's like, it's the, it's what you're soaking in is actually keeping you oh. in line. That, that it's, like you know, the, ale, the ale wives and pushing them down by like suggesting that they're witches. Yes, exactly. So you're using these same, like, we're all steeped in, in this mythology. So to try to transgress by using this mythology, you're actually supporting the very system that you're, that is oppressing you in many ways. Oh. And this is... So that's, yeah. Th- this is the, he- the hegemony of, of not just leadership, but control, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so you try to you have create a counter, like, counter hegemony to... You know, that's the only way to kind of escape. So life in quotations. Huh. I might be wrong, but mm-hmm. 
imagine, imagine me wagging my fingers and making air quotes. Uh, right? I'm imagining it. Yes. Viewer, look at me now. Mm-hmm. I'm making yeah. air quotes. Okay. So, <laughs> Jamin likes kayaking. Jamin eats avocados. Mm-hmm. This is great podcasting. Jamin doesn't <laughs> understand Lilith. Have I just lived my life in quotations, or did I do it entirely wrong? You did it entirely wrong. Dang it. So, like, if you, if, if say, in your biography, um, you talked about how you were a self-made man. I who, am. Um, <laughs> who, like, and you told this series of stories showing how you were a self-made man, and they all had aspects of, like, one deals with, you know, your childhood poverty, and another one deals with, you know, encountering the kindness of a stranger, and another one deals with you defeating um, a bad guy in some way. Like, those are all cultural patterns that you are quoting. You're living your life within those patterns, so you're living in quotations. It's the artificiality of self-mythologization. Exactly. Self-mythologization. Help. There's no such thing uh, because mythologizing the self. There it is. Yeah, because you're only you you you're just constantly using the same language and the same motifs okay. and the same okay. themes. This is a okay. So, a certain level of of intentional wearing an artificial label or set of stories to uplift your own personal story. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay. So, Jamin went kayaking and won. How about how about Lady Gaga as the, as an expression of this? Because she has developed this extremely larger than life meat suit wearing, large hair wearing, Ishtar costume wearing self that is beyond any um, possible imagination, and yet she also embraces the down home girl from New York piano bar at the same right. time. Mm-hmm. That makes more sense. I I. I think i understand i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go so far as to say i do but i might well have you ever read little big man or seen the movie little big man oh my god my no. mother loves that movie dustin hoffman is so perfect oh. in it it's so good but it's kind of like that that also illustrates it because there's like you know that was the you know like he has his religious period and he has his you know um cowboy period and he has you know so there's just like yeah you're constantly sort of like hmm. fitting into these cultural motifs and themes. So, so these actresses were participating in this mythology of... Self-mythologizing. Uh, mm-hmm. Self-mythologizing of a beautiful pariah Ooh, sort yeah. of thing. And the most obvious of... Because still, like, even despite the fact that they were not activists, not overtly feminist... And we're still kind of like, you know, everything was still very self-focused. They were more interested in in uh, self-commodification. Sarah and the Marquesa, the one who actually is the most cynical creature. Number three. (laughs) In this. Because because even though they were sort of, it was was very much non-activist. They weren't really trying to change the situation for women on the whole. And still Sarah... Bernhardt and uh, the Marquesa were, they inspired other women mm. to think more broadly about feminist issues and about their own potential transgressive journeys. Mm. 
So they still had that influence, even if they themselves were not motivated to be those role models. Um, but Thetabara, who was 1885 to about 1955, thing, she was kind of known as a vampire. She also fits into the Lamia mold of being uh, this vampiric or vampiric creature. And she was marketed by her production company as a devil woman, as a vampire, and as a destroyer of men. And so she was in all of these roles where she sought vengeance against unfaithful men. And they actually outfitted her house to make it look spooky. And (laughs) they gave her these backstories to make her look spooky. So it's like Elvira. Wait, exactly. Who is this again? Theodabara. I've never heard of her. Yeah, she was in a gazillion movies, and she was mostly like vampires and she devils and things what? of that nature. I think yeah. you'd, you'd you'd recognize her image. Um, oh, she's, definitely. She's got definitely. like the coal eyes and the spooky hair, and like mm-hmm. totally falling backward into a lake of flowers in a overly ornate picture sort of thing happening. Yeah, and all these women, like the pictures, are just amazing. <laughs> they're like so. Their costumes are just mind blowingly awesome. But she is one who actually did make some kind of proto-feminist statements publicly about how badly men have treated women. But she also had the most conventional lifestyle. She gave up acting for her husband. And, you know, she admitted that all of the the, the vampiric she-devil stuff was just like constructions of the production company publicity machine. So, you know, in the end, like, they all both in the same breath tried to sub like subverted patriarchy while also supporting patriarchy which i think interesting learning about the history of lilith and specifically that essentially she uh much of what we know of her came from a joke book <laughs> it sort of fits like there's this figure that can be she could be both like she can carry both yeah right yeah like she she could she's adaptable enough to be this transgressive figure or role model for feminism from for feminists while also being this tool of the patriarchy. Just seeing pictures of actually more of uh, the Marquesa Luisa Casati made me like, oh my gosh, just had these insane, insane outfits and they had coffins in their houses. And what was, what was Barra's biggest role? She looks, I mean, she's so familiar looking. Cleopatra Um, probably. Yes. Cleopatra. Mm Mm-hmm. So I want to bring the mood down entirely by tying Lilith to the Kabbalah and the trope of the bad woman on a cosmic level. Yay! <laughs> Man, I'm stoked. So get ready to fall asleep. Oh, boy. Um, so Kabbalah, we're going to the 1300s to the Zohar, which is the first major tome oh, of Are we going to mess with this? Kabbalah. Yes, we are totally going to mess with the Zohar. Um, <laughs> now, to 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 get into the Kabbalah mindset, you're dealing with like deep numerology type things. The idea that each letter is a figure of great power that has its own personality, kind of like a zodiac sign or something like that, and that understanding these things shows you how to understand the patterns of the world. It's an esoteric sort of numerology system for just nerds. No, thank you for looking at the patterns of the universe. Um, as, as all magic does, it's it's kind of up there with hermetic magic in terms of like weird symbol manipulation and such like. But you have to buy into the idea that all of these letters are extremely important. These are like the 32 letters of the Jewish alphabet, I think. And each one is a powerful magical force of its own. Are you with me so far? 
Sure. Just, just, mm-hmm. just nod. The audience can tell. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. So, the four-letter name of God, Yad Hevauha, Yad Hevauha, uh, Yahweh. Um, each of those is its own letter. Very oh, good. That guy. Yeah. Let's give him a cookie. Um, <laughs> I said his name. Is he going to show up now? Like Santa? No, no. That's 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 a uh, Beetlejuice. Bloody Mary. Haster. <laughs> okay, so. The whole 72 thing that we've been talking about lately, that's tied into the sort of Kabbalah tree of life, the Sephiroth, which is um, 72, it's three times two, I think. No, 32 times two, I believe. It's two times three times three times two. Okay, right. Two times three times two times two. Anyway, that many nodes of the tree of life. The tree of life has 10 nodes. Each one corresponds to a archangel. Um, I'm not going to list them all out, but if you've seen this kind of complicated like double diamond diagram with hebrew letters in it that's probably the kabbalah tree of life image it's the sephiroth a lot of the goetic demonology idea is that each of these things contains its dark reflection those are the klipoth i think and i am totally abusing poorly summarizing and mistranslating a lot of this to get to the point of this non-story anyway of the 10 major nodes of the kabbalah tree of life uh, the bottom the bottom three that kind of form the base of this diagram and represent God's energy flowing through the entire universe and out into the cosmos. The second from the bottom is VUCA. <laughs> I know I'm boring you to tears, Whose but dark reflection <laughs> is VUCA 2.0. <laughs> Look uh, upon VUCA and be afraid. The third from the bottom is Tiferet, and that is kind of the aspect of the sun. This is God's glory shining through from the entire like tree of creation, balancing on this and moving out. It's at the heart of this this complex Kabbalah diagram. The one below it is Yesod, and this is kind of the bridge to the tenth nexus, the tenth um, Sephiroth, which is Shekinah. And Shekinah is the presence of God. If you've heard like scripture along the general lines of whenever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Whenever my people read the Torah, there I am. This is the presence that rode the ark. This is God manifest amongst his people. So a very powerful idea. And this is kind of the bottom, the balancing point of this entire tree of creation idea. That is aligned with a very female energy. It's seen as a female principle. The presence of God is kind of tied to this this female word. Um, Tifret, the sun, and Shekinah, the moon, this is a male-female pair. Uh, it's called a heros gamos, a sacred marriage. And so this, this, these two are bridged by Yesod, but it's kind of a male and female pair that need to reconcile to kind of round out creation in this holy union. Still with me? Mm. Uh. Sure. <laughs> so we're going back to like, I guess it's not, it's not quite the hermaphroditic binary. Well, the hermaphrodite is a, is a union as well, like a, a union of, mm-hmm. a, a union of, Let's let's imagine that in part that's 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 got some truth to it because like the the union of opposites is very important. Give me a minute um, to read through the show notes so I can look at the pictures and understand what you've just said. Okay. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> you're you're going to do a good show notes, right? Oh yes. yeah. It's oh, I see. This is a future everything. thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the sacred marriage is an important concept here. Um, there's a male and female principle, and they must unite to kind of let the energy of God flow through the universe. Okay. Um, and it's not marriage. It's marriage. It's, 
yes, it is a, a holy marriage. Love. Like a writ, like, no, don't. <laughs> Seriously, don't. <laughs> um, you know, horn god and goddess, this sort of idea that the male and female pair is a very vital and important principle that echoes through the universe. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Tephrath and Shekinah are these pairs. Okay. Uh, but in the fall from grace in the Garden of Eden, everything kind of broke. And this energy is no longer flowing properly through the cosmos. This is not necessarily original sin, but God's plan has been kind of thwarted and shaken and is no longer working. And in some versions, this energy, this like healthy flow is not going through our universe in a good way, but is in fact flowing through the Klippoth. This is the kind of dark echo of the Sephiroth, the tree of knowledge. It's not evil necessarily. In a certain sense, the word means shell or flakes or peels and a peel protects a fruit a shell protects the animal inside of it so not entirely bad but generally speaking the clipoth are seen as kind of a dark reflection of the positive tree of knowledge and i can see in our zoom chat that i'm completely losing these people so i'm going to continue to plow forward <laughs> so, I'm, I'm 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 soaking it all in okay so the female principle of the sacred marriage is shekinah mm-hmm. um with a q the presence of God. Every one of these things has its own angel that goes with it, and Sandalfun is the tenth angel here in this pattern. That doesn't really matter. In the Klipoth, the tenth character, the bottom of this tree of life that everything flows through is Lilith. She's the tenth. She holds in the Klipoth, she holds the position of the presence of God, kind of the foundation of this entire thing. And there's suggestions in the Zohar that what she has done in kind of inheriting the power of the universe in this kind of, it's not quite working anymore, it's being short-circuited, is she is trying to subvert the Hieros Gamos. She's trying to be the other woman for the cosmos in taking over the female portion of the sacred marriage. And in doing so, she separates the He in yad he he from itself and breaks up the possibility of God having union with himself, she has destabilized all of creation, but also maybe possibly holding back the end of the universe because until God reconciles himself with himself, we can't move on. So she's short-circuited the entire cosmos, but is also maybe possibly just possibly holding back the transformation into the next world. Hmm. So the she's ul- kind of the ultimate disruptor. Yes. But yes. while also, I don't know, like this seems like a very kind of science fiction-y plot. Very science fiction. Well, mm-hmm. you're, you're assuming these letters become metaphors for the entire universe and the way everything works. It's like you're storytelling with, with numerology and it's kind of where we've gone. Her role in this is like the cosmic other woman. And I think that's kind of amazing. But so then, okay, so what is the... so? If, for her to disrupt, like, what is the end game of her disrupting this? Like, what is the goal? I think being a part of that perfect relationship, not being the other. So being the woman as opposed to the other woman. But then you've got this kind of... But 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 her trope is the other woman. Like, that is in her fundamental nature. It's almost like you're destabilizing an atom, right? Yeah, I think like, that's, that's, that feels right. But then where do those, where do those things go? Okay. A quick aside, earlier you were like Lilith in this uh, clip-off thing is the V, and now you just said she's the head, not the vowel. Yes. Were you 
Dude. Were you correct in saying ha or va? I am correct in saying that she's separating the ha from the ha. I am not saying that I understand anything about that because it makes no sense to me okay. at all. Part of it is that the people allied with the various nodes of the Sephiroth have changed over the years. Fair. But physically, and, and, like, you've got, it's Y-H-V-H, so she is physically the, the kind of wedge between the two H's. But she's also holding them together. Like she's yeah. connecting and separating them at the same time. It doesn't really work for me in my very limited understanding of the Kabbalah. I'll I'll go that Fair. far. And this is a this is something that uh, ten minutes on Wiki will not help you with. <laughs> but I do like that she's kind of this like I don't know like a gear that's loose and kind of like both disrupting and also keeping everything together because if that gear were to spin free, then everything would kind of fall apart. It So she's kind of a necessary, like free radical or something in there. <laughs> that's kind of whole, you know, it's that by the very imperfection, it makes it hmm. perfect. It sounds like the plan of the universe. And this is how I'm reading it. The plan of the universe is self-destruction right? Mm -hmm. If the world comes to fruition, the plan of everybody is culmination, self-annihilation. She is... But in a good way. Unity with God. Oh. Not self-destruction. Unity with the cosmos principle. But it's the end of life as we know it. That is true. And I feel fine, Mm -hmm. but what she's doing is she's delaying that and she's promoting the now, the here and fecund now of reality, of humanity, saying... We're not going to end your words. She's de-eminentizing the Eshaton. What? Oh, <laughs> I was almost feeling smart, and then you said words. She's holding back the end of the world. Yeah, that's what I just said. Yeah, but I used 75-cent words. I- but it is kind of like she's mucking up divinity with her humanity. But divinity yeah. is destructive. Right. No, mm-hmm. no, 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 never. Never, never. Union <laughs> with the whole union with the holy is is the ideal state in a, in a in a story. In a st- yes, but but yeah, and she keeps mucking it up by inserting like humanity and sexuality and messy like death and Yeah, it's like I'd rather like, live yeah. my life living my life than being perfect. That's a lot. No, mm-hmm. I take that back. I'd rather not. Mm. I think I think the idea of union with God is a very nice one, but it would disrupt our lives as we know it. <laughs> at my uh, at my old church, the minister was dealing with a person that came in off the streets who started yelling at him. This is the Episcopal church where they rang their keys at the uh, altar. Uh, he, <laughs> the he, altar he, key he, party. Yeah, he he bumbled up to the altar and said, "Do you realize that the world is going to end?" And the priest said, "Yes." But we're Episcopalians, and we have other plans this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that you said that Easter you would have cookies and what was it? Like it was oh, we have a, a cookie, cookie buffet. buffet. Yeah, a cookie buffet. <laughs> yeah, that was great, and I'm still shocked that every that this is not like a sacrament. <laughs> I've never been to a cookie buffet. I know. Damn it. Okay, so we went down a myriad of rabbit holes. We kind of realized absolutely who Lilith is and who she isn't. 
that's not true in the slightest, no. I was going to yeah. say that's a very generous statement. But it's been it's been a fun evening, and uh, I like to say it's uh, like a thank you. Thank you for following along with us. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for commenting. Uh, if you're in a position, we'd like to say thank you for supporting us on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash dispatchist. And uh, for now, I'd like to say we'll see you in hell. podcast is copyright 2021 by the dispatchist and its creative commons you're welcome to reuse with attribution look for us on your favorite podcast app say hi to us on twitter or gmail at the dispatchist no spaces check out our website dispatch.ist for more episodes show notes and a variety of hellish resources Ooh, ice cream.